0: Hi guys, just a quick thing I'm adding to the front. So my podcast platform has added a new thing where you can add something. They've paired up with Spotify and you can add 30 seconds of a song from Spotify. Sadly, when I went to publish it, I realised that there's no such thing as a free lunch. As they say, your episode is only available on Spotify when you put something in there on the app typical so at the start of this episode I just talk about how I've included a song Um, what I've done is I've cheekily added it my own way um, a little bit of it to the end of this episode so ignore what I say at the start welcome back to part 2 episode 55 of unknown passage and that was Australian singer-songwriter Tex Perkins and the song Barlow and Chambers. My podcast platform has introduced a really cool little thing. This is not an ad. I just think it's really cool. They've paired with Spotify. So you can add about 30 seconds of a song into any episode. So I'll be playing around with that. So thanks, Anchor. If you could get back to me why you can't transcribe videos um, anymore from audio, that would be really good because you stopped replying to me. So... Welcome back to part two of the Barlow Chambers case. If you haven't listened to part one, you have to, because where we left off, the two men had been caught at the airport in Penang after picking up the parcel of heroin that was organised for them, and they were planning on flying back into Australia. However, you'll find out that they were never really going to get out of Malaysia. You'll find that out pretty soon. Now, I was thinking after I recorded that episode yesterday, why they didn't have Brian Chambers, who was clearly the more calm of the two, the more professional carry the case. I don't know. Um, I mean, I think it was a setup they were never going to get out anyway, which you'll find out, but I, I really can't tell you. Um, I think maybe they were going to have um, Barlow Carriott instead, who was the amateur. He'd never done it before. He was nervous because if they got caught, maybe they'd just throw him under under the bus. I'm not really sure. Um, But either way, they kind of stuffed it up for themselves, travelling together the entire time. And later on, they are able to prove that, yes, they did um, when the two men try to argue that they didn't know each other and that they weren't travelling together and things like that. So... After I recorded that also, before I get into part two, I I watched this movie. It takes a lot for me to watch a movie now. I Actually, I haven't watched a movie since Joker when it came out and that was like over a year ago. But I actually sat down and watched this movie because Google recommended it to me when I was researching this case and I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it. And I'll talk about it in the wrap up of this. It wasn't great. It was very Hollywood. Um, It's almost like the male version of Broke Down Palace, which I've seen a lot of times. So, I was surprised how this movie got made around the same time and I watched it and was kind of thinking there's no way that this wasn't in some way inspired by the Barlow and Chambers case. So I'll get into that and do my little Roger Ebert breakdown of that movie at the end. So the men were then taken to a prison, the main prison in Penang. And there they spent all of 19, well, the rest of 1983, all of 1984, and most of 1985. Conditions in these prisons are third world. They're not good. And from my understanding, at least in Bali, your life expectancy isn't really that great once you're in there. You're not, if you're sentenced to life, you generally won't live out a long life in these prisons. Um... I've read a lot of books about in particular Balinese prisons and I don't think Malaysian ones are far off and it's foul they're they're severely overcrowded to the point where it's it should be illegal for them to be operating um, a lot of septic tanks just leak into the cells if you manage to have a mattress and things like that it's because you bought it and it's usually just a really thin crappy one where you can fill the floor. There's up to like 12 people in a cell. Um, The food is very ordinary. I know in Bali there's bugs like crawling through it. It's not supposed to be a holiday and it's meant to be, you know, a punishment. Now, the prison in Penang that the men were in was severely overcrowded. It was built in 1849. And it was meant to, initially, it was meant to house up to 350 prisoners. But by the time that the men were in there in 1983, it had 2000 prisoners. And this included women and babies. Because there are men's war, you know, men's parts of the prisons and women's, and women often give birth in there. And because this isn't like a first world prison, it's much like you'd get in the rest of Asia as well as South America. You're able to raise your child in there, which is very reminiscent of prisons in Bolivia, um, the one that the book Marching Powder was about. In I can't think of which one it was in La Paz, I think, um, that's really famous where you can run your own business and things in there. It all comes down to money and. Very much like that in Asia, it comes down to how you're treated. a lot of the time does come down to money and it also comes down to how much you keep your head down and don't involve your country's media, which I will be getting into. So Brian Chambers and Kevin Barlow, they were locked in a cell that measured two by three meters, which is incredibly tiny and they shared it with about three other prisoners. They were in there for up to 22 hours a day, and they were let out for one or two hours for an exercise period. The exercise period is essentially a, they dangle a carrot. If all the inmates in the prison have behaved that day, they're allowed to. If one acts up, nobody goes out for exercise. Now, there are a lot of rumours that have never really been substantiated by the Malaysian authorities that Kevin Barlow was on drugs in prison. And this is because, much like in South America, drugs run rampant through Southeast Asian prisons. And I spoke to my dad about it, which I'll get into in a bit, and um about this case and what he remembered about it. And he said that was one of the things that people had a huge issue with in Australia. Um, the kind of the how it's pretty rich to put people away for Drug trafficking when they 're so freely available um, in in the country as well as in the prisons. So Australian journalist Bruce Dover, who I've been quoting, he wrote for the Herald Sun in 2015 that he had visited the men at this time and he described his experience, quote, despite the crowded conditions, they were in good spirits. They shared a cell. The prison was old but kept meticulously clean by a tough but fair-minded prison warden of the old school. They were allowed the luxury of Western food and time to exercise and sit outside in the sunlight. They had made a pact, they said, not to get their families involved, unquote. Now, that was the initial plan, but that is not how it went to plan. Now, they really thought the two men, particularly Brian Chambers, that they would be back in Australia very soon. Brian Chambers had paid his way out before in Singapore, paid off with a bribe, drug trafficking, and was just allowed to return to Australia. And he really thought that that would be the case again. Um, and that in a matter of time, this would all be, you know, sorted They would pay whoever needed, you know, money and they would be back in Australia again. I think that Kevin Barlow knew the reality of what was happening, but I think that Brian Chambers, his attitude in prison and the way that he acted, was because he really thought it wasn't for too long. Brian Chambers was very well liked in prison, both by the wardens and the other prisoners. He they referred to him in one article as a Jack the Lad, kind of got along with everyone. He was pretty chill. But Kevin Barlow, as had started pretty much when they got to Malaysia to pick up the drugs, he could not adjust to prison life, which is pretty standard. Um, He was described as being, quote, a lunatic and, quote, cracking up, unquote. Now, I think that if he was using drugs, which I kind of get the feeling that he was in prison, whether it's hash or heroin or whatever, it was probably to, you know, sort out his nerves because there's no real evidence that he was doing drugs, um, you know, in a massive way before this other than back home a little bit. Now, Barlow and Chambers for a while shared a cell with a man called Michael McAuliffe. Now, he's another Australian who was done overseas around the same time. He was caught in 1985 in Malaysia for heroin trafficking, trying to set, do the same thing. He shared a cell with Barlow at one point and he basically said that he was a complete crackpot, that you couldn't get sense out of him at all. Just to kind of let you know I won't be covering Michael McAuliffe's case. He was a bartender from Australia who pretty much did the same thing these two men did. And he was caught in nineteen eighty five, two years after the men. So he knew about this. This was on the news. He knew they'd got a death a death sentence and he still went and did it. There's there's some people that just nothing will deter them. Um he was executed in 1988, I believe, um as well in the same prison. So later on, well during this time Kevin Barlow tried to get out of his prison sent, like you know, time in prison. He really thought that Brian Chambers could take all the you know, um responsibility and that Barlow was trying to say that he had been forced to take the trip, which is a really common Thing that people who get caught say, that a ringleader has pretty much threatened their lives and they have to go. He also used the excuse that his girlfriend threatened to leave him if he didn't do the job. Um, yeah, uh, get a new girlfriend. So I talked about the National Crime Authority of Australia, which existed in the 80s and 90s in Australia in relation to drugs, and Detective Sergeant Carl Mengler, that's an unfortunate surname, um, but he travelled over there to interview the Australians that were imprisoned in these various parts of Southeast Asia for drug trafficking. Um, now, Brian Chambers refused to meet with Detective Sergeant Carl Mengler, um, but Barlow did meet with him and he pretty much threw everyone under the bus. He told Carl Mengler about the planning of the trip, which was all basically corroborated later on, how he had been brought into it and told just to follow Brian Chambers. Um, and he did say that he didn't really know the higher-ups, he, the big organisers in Australia, because the point that Carl Mengler was trying to get to was who had organised this back in Perth. Um, and Barlow couldn't tell them, but he did give them the names of the people that he had met back in Perth. By the time their trial started, Bruce Dover, the journalist, said that things had changed dramatically. The two men hardly looked at each other, they never spoke, and it was pretty clear that they were going to turn, each other, turn against each other in court to save their own skin. So, as the trial drew nearer, the media from mostly Australia flocked to Malaysia. They wanted first dibs on contact with the two men and to hear their side of the story. Now, Australians will know that, especially, I think this is kind of a, the hottest topic in about 2004, 2005, when we had a number of Australians arrested in Bali, Indonesia. There's nothing that jeopardises a trial more than the media coming and families coming and getting angry um, and yelling in court. I'm not bothering naming the woman that all Australians know who's unfortunately now trying to be a reality star, which is disgusting, um, a drug trafficker who spent quite a lot of time in a prison in Bali Her family came and just screamed like a bunch of Aussie bogans in the court, and that definitely didn't help the sentence that she got. She's now out. But I think the media has now wised up now because there are a lot of Australians that have been arrested in recent years, especially in China, um, which is really scary. They're on death row in Indonesia. There's a whole Wikipedia page related to Australians that are imprisoned overseas in the various countries, which is sad because Not many other nationalities have that. Now, the New York Times was over there because this suddenly became an international story which did not please the generally conservative and reserved Southeast Asian country of Malaysia. They do not appreciate this media intrusion. And the New York Times said, quote, Malaysian journalists have complained that the families of the two men executed have been kept away from local reporters by the Australian television networks who paid their expenses to Kuala Lumpur, unquote. So basically, Malaysian journalists who technically, they should have got first dibs on speaking to the men, it is their country, and they've broken the law in that country. The Australian television networks paid off the Malaysian authorities in order to speak to them first. And I don't think this this was something that really helped in the men's defence either. Now, I rang my dad yesterday, he was a journo for almost 50 years and he remembers every case that's ever happened ever. Um, it's really, is really scary. Um, so I rang him and I, I said, first of all, when you've got a dad who's a journalist, you have to discuss, you have to be up with the media and you have to discuss what's going on in the world. So we did a 20 minute breakdown of the second presidential debate. Um, <laughs> and then we talked about the corruption in Victoria. And then I said, okay, so the reason I called was, do you remember Barlow and Chambers? And he immediately, because he remembers everything, he said Malaysia executed. I said, yeah. He said 1986. I said, yeah. He said, I said, what was the general kind of um, consensus in Australia on the two men? Because I said that I had read one article that said the consensus was apathetic to the men, meaning people were like, well, they broke the they broke the law they do the time and this is this is what happens um my dad said he doesn't remember it like that he says that firstly people in australia were they couldn't believe that an australian would be on trial for their life in another country because they a lot of people couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that when you break a law in another country that you you are under their laws not your own country's laws they they couldn't believe that um I wish I'd just recorded our conversation. They couldn't believe that another country would execute foreigners, um, which we now know they absolutely would. He also said that he remembers people couldn't believe that Malaysia would try people for for the death penalty when there was such a double standard of drugs over there. They were so freely available in Malaysia and the Golden Triangle, um, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia, Malaysia. um, And they were freely available in prison as well. So he he also remembers that he said, which I was like, whoa, your memory is still amazing. He said one of them, he, I said probably Barlow, he goes, he had like a nervous twitch all the time. He was always shaking, but people generally just assumed that he was using drugs in the prison, that it wasn't like a mental anxiety issue, Um, that he was, as my dad said, strung out. Um, and he said that, people were really kind of outraged that Australia, who hasn't had, we haven't had the death penalty since 1967. The last person to be killed was actually in Melbourne, Ronald Ryan. It's quite a famous case. That was in 1967. So, he said a lot of people really just thought that the Australian rules should apply overseas. I mean, these people generally probably were low IQ, um, the average person they were talking to that didn't understand that when you break the law in another country, it doesn't matter what country you're from, that doesn't apply anymore. All we can have is diplomats and foreign affairs ministers and possibly the Prime Minister, which comes into play shortly, um, speak out in their defence. I also asked him why I can't find any videos on this because the media was over there. There was video at the time, obviously, um, that they would send back to Australia to put on the news. I said they're not available on YouTube anywhere. They're only purchasable on Getty Images, the videos, and I'm not going to do that. And he said he has no idea um, because you can get every other trial. A lot of them were live streamed in Australia, really famous ones of Australians locked up in Indonesia. So if anyone has the answers as to why the coverage of this would only be purchasable on Getty Images, I've never seen that before. So, yeah, let me know. On the 17th of July 1985, the trial of Kevin Barlow and Brian Chambers commenced at the High Court of Penang, for some reason, Brian Chambers, which I haven't often seen in trials in this part of the world, he remained handcuffed throughout the trial in, in the courtroom. The reason that Kevin Barlow was not handcuffed was because, as you see from photos of the time, he was always almost always on crutches. He had sustained a groin injury in prison. I do not know how or why. Um, Maybe a fight with another prisoner or a prison guard, I'm not entirely sure. Um, But apparently it was quite serious enough for his defence to ask that they drop the death penalty so he could return to Australia for surgery. Um, So you can look at photos which I'll put up of Kevin Barlow walking down the steps of the High Court on his crutches now, the men's defence was pretty simplistic. Um, they both said that they did not know about the drugs and that the drugs that were found in the maroon suitcase belonged to the other man, and this was what they were sticking to. Brian Chambers said in when he got up um, that Kevin Barlow when they were arrested at the airport that Kevin Barlow had attempted to bribe a policeman when he'd found the drugs. Brian Chambers was pointing to the fact that this showed that Kevin Barlow was the guilty party. Now, the entire court case tore the Barlow and Chambers families apart And it's really quite sad. Bruce Dover wrote, quote, They turned on each other. The parents and family members who Barlow and Chambers had early on agreed to keep out of it now watched on helplessly from the court gallery as each man tried to implicate the other in a desperate gambit that at best would send one man to the gallows while the other walked free. Parents, sisters, brothers and supporters struggled to understand why the guilty party wouldn't own up and accept the blame so my boy could live. It was a high-risk strategy that in the end meant only that in their efforts to save themselves, each had condemned the other to die, unquote. So then the Malaysian authorities put forward their case that the men were indeed in on it together and both as guilty as the other. The officer who had arrested them at the airport testified that Barlow was holding the maroon suitcase and shivering kind of uncontrollably while they were waiting to check in for their flight, they also put forward the um, fact that Brian Chambers had, after two days after the arrest, had finally caved and said that he owned the suitcase. Police confirmed that Brian Chambers and Kevin Barlow were the victim of an informer. So they were really just set up to die. Um, Right around the time of well a couple of days before their arrest three or four penang drug dealers had been arrested and interrogated pretty heavily about brian chamber's movements i think they were onto the who this guy was and were aware that he was in malaysia at the time the informer his identity was not given to the trial so they were never able to know who it was it was a malaysian but also in the court case the men's drug use, um, in prison or out of prison, was not brought in, um, because quote it would have prejudiced their cases and exposed the heroin trade inside Malaysia's prisons. Unquote. So that's exactly what my dad said that they weren't going to bring that up because it was a pretty surefire way of proving that they were getting drugs in the prisons and that they really didn't care that this was happening within the prison system. After a six-day trial on the twenty-third of July. Um, nineteen eighty. Sorry, I put into twenty twenty. Where am I? Nineteen um, eighty five. The men were found guilty, um, in the high court in Penang. Um, the prosecutors basically put forward their case that was accepted by the judge that the men had arrived together, they'd travelled together, they'd stayed together and they were leaving together on the same plane and the only reason that that would be is because they had, quote, a common purpose of trafficking drugs, unquote. Bruce Dover wrote about the verdict being handed down, quote, I remember too the steamy oppressive heat of the packed courtroom in Penang where, on August 1st, 1985, Barlow and Chambers were sentenced to death by hanging. The angry, anguished glare of despair as Chambers turned on the Australian tabloid reporter, who had dared demand a response to a shouted question as the condemned men were led from the courthouse. How does it feel, Jeff? How does it feel? How do you think it fucking feels, you idiot? He responded, unquote. Now, I just want to say the reason that they called out Jeff um, was because that's one of Brian Chamber's middle names. So I presume at that point he was going by Jeff. So on the 1st of August, as Bruce Dover just explained, 1985, they were both attended their sentencing hearing a week after their trial ended. And that was where they learned that they would receive the death sentence by hanging because of the mandatory death penalty that had been brought in two years before in Malaysia for trafficking over a certain amount, which they had absolutely exceeded. Bruce Dover wrote, quote, I remember lying to Chamber's sister Catherine back at the hotel later that later when, through her tears. She asked, they don't hang white men in Malaysia, do they? No, I offered in reply, knowing full well, they probably would, unquote. Now, Malaysians really felt that this verdict was justified obviously now i found a new york times article that covered the the death penalty being handed down and in that the journalist had spoken to a malaysian shop owner the shop owner said when they were asked about the death penalty and what they thought quote you see now here that we have very strict laws, unquote. So basically, this Malaysian shopkeeper was saying, well, you have to follow the laws, otherwise that happens. And we have to kind of use them as an example for future people who are considering doing this. Now, you do get appeals in the court system. However, in a lot of cases, before the appeals have even been exhausted in Southeast Asian countries, people have been executed. It's very hit or miss. And this is where you want to be on your best behavior and not have a media intrusion. So as the appeals kicked off against the death penalty to have their sentences commuted to probably life in prison, the Australian Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time, Bill Hayden, he was the first to make an appeal against the death penalty. When it gets to this point, normally the leaders of a country put in a bit of a kind of half assed appeal for their lives. They generally don't get involved up until the point where a death penalty is handed down because we don't have it here they generally have to speak out against it. Now, the Australian Prime Minister at the time was a very famous man here called Bob Hawke, and he was very passionate about a stay of execution um, being put on and the men being commuted to life in prison. Um, when the men were executed later on, Hawke, he called the hangings, quote, quote, unquote, barbaric. And this remark really tarnished Australian relations with Malaysia for quite a long time. Now, I'll never get to bring up Bob Hawke again on this podcast, so I need to include this fact about our prime previous Prime Minister who died just last year in 2019. So, we had one Prime Minister that I've mentioned before, Harold Holt, that drowned. We never found him. Um, this one, Bob Hawke, who was a very kind of funny figure. Um, He had the world record for a long time um, for sculling what's called a yard of, um, a yard it's called, of ale. So a yard is two and a half pints, which is about 1.4 litres. He got the world record for quite a long time from the time that he was in university when he went over to Oxford. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He could scull a Two and a half pints of ale in eleven seconds. (laughs) Now, when you look up Bob Hawke on YouTube, pretty much until he died last year, wherever he went, people would ask him to do it, and (laughs) he would do it. So um he's very kind of he's a very famous figure in Australia. Now, he's kind of immortalized in that way. I can't remember what he many of his policies. I wasn't really old enough to remember him as PM. My mum loved him, my dad hated him, um, but he's immortalised in that way. So we have a Prime Minister that went missing while swimming and one that had a world drinking record. So if you type in Bob Hawke with an E on the end into YouTube, you can watch videos of him sculling up until 2012 um, when he was a very old man and all the yobbos around him cheering him on. Now, in response to Bob Hawke's statement that... They were, it was barbaric, the death penalty. Um, the, one of the Malaysian authorities um, took a lot of offence to this. He made it out like Bob Hawke was implying that they were animals. He said that they didn't do any lynchings or anything like that. Lynchings are what barbarians would do, um, but hanging is kind of. Also in regards to Bob Hawke's statement um, that someone should, never has the right to take somebody else's life um, the Prime Minister of Malaysia Asia at the time, his name was Mahathir Mohammed. he replied, quote, you should tell that to the drug traffickers, unquote, which I think is a very powerful statement. And I can't really find fault with that statement. Unfortunately, heroin kills a lot of people and you are transporting it so people are able to get their hands on it. Now, because of Kevin Barlow's dual citizenship in both Australia and the United Kingdom, Barlow's family made appeals to another famous face, Margaret Thatcher, she was then the Prime Minister of the UK. Um, and she made, you know, a bit of a half-assed half statement appealing to save Kevin Barlow's life. Now, on death row, which is very different to when you're just in prison in general, when you're moved to death row, it's, it's, I, I have to say it's barbaric how how they're treated. Um, It's even worse than when you're in the general population awaiting trial, these standards of living. But then again, it's their country and that's the way they do it. And that is the punishment. And people know that before they go there. So as is standard, when you end up in prison, seemingly, Brian Chambers took up biblical studies um, with a Catholic missionary who would visit him. And when they upheld the death penalty and he lost his appeal. Um, He broke down and wept in her arms. She was often with him in court. On the 15th of December 1985, the two men were then transferred to the Malaysian capital, Kuala Lumpur. Um, And it was then that they were imprisoned in the very famous Pudu Prison, which is the main, very famous prison in Malaysia. At this stage, Barlow was still saying he was innocent. Um, I think that he was trying anything to get off the death penalty. So obviously, you would at that point. Now, Poodoo Prison is... 10 times worse than what I just described in Penang, which is already terrible. Pudu Prison now is demolished. Just a couple of years ago, it fell into disrepair. It had been for quite a long time. It had been built in 1895. It was built to hold 700 prisoners. And by the time the men were transferred there, it held 6,000 prisoners. 50 of those prisoners were drug dealers on death row. So Kevin Barlow had a quite vocal lawyer, Karpol Singh. And strangely, a Melbourne barrister actually flew over to assist at the appeal, which I find really interesting. He must have had some sort of understanding of the system over there because you can't just go in and try to help when you aren't familiar with the system. So maybe he had at one point worked in that area. His name was Frank Galbali. And also a Victorian prison psychiatrist also went over um, to speak with Kevin Barlow as well. Now, on the 16th of December um, 1985, the two defence of Kevin Barlow, Singh and Galbali, actually got into a massive punch-on in the courtroom. Basically, it the court had been adjourned for the day um, and they punched on for like five minutes afterwards. Basically, the Melbourne barrister Galbally had asked Kapil Singh um, to do all these additional things at the last, the eleventh hour, to get to get the possibility of getting Kevin Barlow off death row. And Singh did not do them. He said, "quote There was little point doing this, um, and he wasn't going to do them." Which is, which is not what you want in a defence. Um, now, Bali had basically tried to put forward in court that Kevin Barlow, the fact that he shivered constantly and shook, um, he could have a spinal injury. And Singh did not give any kind of shit. He didn't put forward medical evidence in trial um, that could have proven that and could have got Kevin Barlow off death row. Singh believed that Kevin Barlow's shivering was related to basically anxiety, um, and an existing medical condition. And I really can't say because he was shaking basically like that from the time that they were in Malaysia. So it, I honestly think it probably was an existing medical condition. Um, and it was probably anxiety as well, because I do that when I'm severely anxious. I haven't done it for quite a long time, but, um, I really, my hands just shake uncontrollably. Um, and The fight basically ended when Singh, he left the courtroom. He didn't give a crap anymore about his client. And he told Gelbali over his shoulder as he exited the courtroom um, not to criticise Malaysia's legal system. So he was basically warning him. And that's really not... (laughs) That's really not what you want in a defence. Now, later on, Singh tried to have the man who was actually helping him in Barlow's defence, Bali charged with contempt of court. Um, and Galbali was actually almost forced, pressured to leave Malaysia and return to Australia. He was forced to give an apology in court for what he said um, and then he left before the men. Now, if you're wondering about the families of these two men, um, their mothers, Sue Chambers and Barbara Barlow, were incredibly vocal in the defence of their sons. Um, I've seen a lot of photos with the two of them together. I think after all was said and done, they really, as you say, bury the hatchet in regards to blaming the other's son. Um, I think when it came down to it, they were they had to be united because both were losing their sons. But their mothers were the most vocal, Barbara Barlow in particular, supporting the defence of their sons. Barbara Barlow sent telegrams to the Pope, um, Margaret Thatcher, the Queen of England, Australia's foreign ministers, um, the United Nations. She did everything she could to save Kevin Barlow's life. Now, the only person that she heard back from was the Queen. um, And the letter basically was a, I'll pass this on to the appropriate minister who may be able to help you. Um, And Margaret Thatcher did appeal at the last, the 11th hour for clemency. Um, There was a defence lawyer who helped Kevin Barlow to draw up his will on death row. um, And he basically, one of the last conversations he had with Kevin Barlow was that He had not been able to secure a meeting with Malaysia's prime minister for any kind of clemency deal. That's really your last option in these cases. You can, in Thailand, you can appeal before the king and basically plead for your life. He basically told him, I was unable to meet with him. He would not meet with me. His last words, Kevin Barlow's, to this man, Mr. Karpel, were, quote, you have tried your best and that's the end unquote. Now, Michelle Barlow, Kevin's sister, when she went to visit her brother for the last time on death row, the day before he was executed alongside Brian Chambers, she bought a, a bouquet of orchids to her brother. She embraced him. They cried. Um, and also Brian Chambers Senior um, visited his son as well at the same time. And, you know, his mother as well. Brian Chambers Senior, when he left for the last time, he told reporters who were waiting outside that both Barlow and Chambers were, quote, distraught and upset but have accepted their fate. Bruce Dover, right, quote, no one could possibly imagine the anguish of a last goodbye to a son or a brother, knowing that in the morning they will be taken out and killed at dawn, unquote. On the 7th of July, 1986... Not even three years after the men were initially arrested at Penang Airport, Brian Chambers and Kevin Barlow were led um, to the gallows at Pudu Prison and they were hanged until they were dead. One of the most haunting things about being hung is that before you are hung, you are fully aware of what's about to happen because about a week before um, they weigh you in order to calculate the length of rope that they need in order to hang you until you die. When you are hung, you are generally handcuffed and hooded um, and when you consider how long it had been since their arrests, it's not a long time. Two of the Bali nine who were arrested in 2005 they were executed in 2015 in Indonesia. So generally, you would expect to be on death row for about 10 years, but Malaysia really has a fast track system. Now, they used an executioner called Rajendran Kupasami. This was one of his last jobs. He retired later on that year. Now, one of the most famous parts of this case that people often talk about is that Barbara Barlow, who was there for her son until the end. She mixed up a mixture of 75 sleeping tablets, mixed them in gin, whiskey, and brandy, and then she smuggled this concoction into the prison in a small plastic bottle. The plan was to give it to her son, Kevin Barlow, so that he would be able to kill himself before he made it to the gallows. The saddest thing about this is that she did not give it to him because she thought at the 11th hour, at the last moment, maybe, maybe they would be granted clemency or there would be another avenue of appeal. She didn't want to give it to him till all of those had been exhausted. So she kept it to herself. And that's incredibly so sad to me because I bet if she knew what was going to happen, she would have given it to him. So he just went to sleep. According to the AP News in an article I found from 1986, quote, prison regulations barred Ponosumi from releasing further details about the executions, but officials said the condemned men walked calmly to the gallows with a prison warden on either side. Neither ate any breakfast, officials said, but had a meal late Sunday of satay, a Malay dish consisting of meat skewered on short sticks and barbecued. As the men were executed, the voice of a Muslim holy man came over the loudspeaker of a nearby mosque to recite the morning prayer, which begins, Allah Akbar, or God is great. No relatives were present for the hangings, unquote. Now, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but based on how Kevin Barlow was acting, I really doubt he walked calmly to the gallows. I just, I just have to say that. Now I'll put this headline up, but the Herald Sun, one of Australia's largest newspapers, broke the news the following morning with the headline that is basically takes up the entire front page of the newspaper, quote, it's done, which is such a final kind of thing. I love reading headlines and how they craft them and that's there's no other way to put it really. Bruce Dover wrote, quote, I remember standing outside of Pudu Prison in the early hours of July 7th 1986 when at 6.50am a prison goods truck rolled through the big steel gates. Photographers are shown the body of Kevin Barlow after his execution in Malaysia. Inside were the bodies of Barlow and Chambers, their tagged and exposed feet providing proof to the waiting men and women of the press that Malaysian justice had indeed been done. And you can see these photos, they were wheeled out, and you can see Kevin Barlow's feet just hanging lifelessly out. Barbara Barlow, as many of you who are mothers can probably relate to it, she said at 6.08, which was the moment of her son's death, by hanging, she said, quote, "'At 6.08, my heart skipped a beat. I knew it was over,' unquote. Asked how he felt, Barlow's lawyer, Karpel Singh, who didn't put through all of the, you know, things that could have got him off at the 11th hour, said, quote, "'Pathetic that it should have to come to this stage,' unquote." Now the men were then taken to a government hospital mortuary. There was a post mortem that was, that was done, which I find really interesting, considering they they were there, they know how they died. Um, the men were then privately cremated, with their families allowed to be at the cremation at Kevin Barlow's cremation, Barbara Barlow um, placed yellow chrysanthemums beside the coffin um, before it was cremated. She said, quote, I love my boy. All I know is that he has been very brave. Now, Barbara Barlow, actually, somebody filmed the execution and she actually watched it, even though the family wasn't allowed to be there. She actually watched it months later, which I think is an incredibly brave thing to do. I wouldn't be able to do that now, Bruce Dover wrote, quote, Balu and Chambers were not evil men, stupid, naive, greedy even, but like Chan and Sukumaran, capable and perhaps deserving of redemption and a second chance, unquote. Chan and Sukumaran are the two Bali Nine members that have been executed in Bali so far. And I, despite the fact that I respect the death penalty and how they go about it in their own countries, those two men, I felt sick that they were executed in the end. Um, Andrew Chan and Muran Sukumaran, they were so great in prison to their fellow prisoners. They ran programs. They taught them English. They taught them woodworking, computers. They, I've, you can watch them being interviewed. Um. Despite they were despite the fact they were the ringleaders of the Bali Nine, even the prison warden came forward and said, please don't kill these men because they, it will have a snowball effect on the mindset of the rest of the prisoners because they don't want to lose these two men. And Indonesia still executed um, them by firing squad in 2015. Um, they were like, no, we're going through with it. This is what they were sentenced to. So, yeah. Amnesty International, um, who were very involved in the Barlow and Chambers case, had basically said openly that Malaysia was breaking United Nations resolutions, banning executions while a mercy plea was pending. So, the men were executed when there was an, a, a plea for clemency from the high court, highest courts um, and the Prime Minister. So, That is actually breaking United Nations laws, Um, but they still went along with it anyway. And I think that's got to do with the media, which I'll get into when I talk about this movie that I watched. So if you're wondering what happened to John Asiak, the man who organised all of this, and if it wasn't for him, he wouldn't have put the two together and they wouldn't have gone over there. In June of 1988, he was found guilty in Perth, Australia, of conspiring with Barlow and Chambers um, to import 179 grams of heroin into Australia from Malaysia. This is two years almost after the men were executed. Barlow had obviously implicated him and named him when he was interviewed by the National Crime Authority in prison in Malaysia. And the court during this trial heard that Barlow, um, because of his financial problems, which I talked about in the first episode, he had been offered $6,000 to do the drug run, which was quite a substantial amount of money um, back in 1983. So, as is Australian Australian verdicts and sentences, ASIAC, he denied the charges. He pled not guilty, but he was found guilty and he served um ten years in prison in Australia. So he was the ringleader of all of this. The two men under him hung and he was out um by, you know, nineteen ninety-eight. In nineteen ninety-six, after over a century of being one of the most kind of tough prisons in Malaysia, maximum security prison, and also a prisoner of war camp during the Second World War, Pudu Prison was closed in Kuala Lumpur. Now, they put on a sound and light show for a while and tried to make it a museum in the execution room, which drew big crowds, which (sighs) I mean, I can't really argue with that because in Australia, we have the old Melbourne jail, and you can go and do these tours and things like that. But it is that's really tough because they were still executing people up until it shut. We're not talking about things that happened 100 years ago. It's kind of gross. Um, But then it was shut down permanently and demolished. Australians have continued to do this despite Barlow and Chambers being such a famous, notorious, infamous case in Australia. As I said, the Bali Nine um, did it Chappelle Corby did it. Michael McAuliffe, who shared a cell with Kevin Barlow, did it. And um, we currently have one on death row in Vietnam, an Australian. And there was an Australian um, who was executed in 2005 in Singapore by hanging um, for drug trafficking as well. Now, Malaysia and the death penalty. There's been in the last two years quite a turnaround in regards to it. At the moment, they have abolished the death penalty, as I kind of went into um, in the first episode. It's kind of on hold, but there's no mandatory death penalty for drug traffickers now. It's really hard to get information about where it stands at the moment, but they've really pushed back against it. One of the main proponents of abolishing it in general is was a Malaysian lawyer who he was old enough to remember the Barlow and Chambers case and from then he had crusaded against the death penalty. So it had really affected him. Um at the time of kind of them putting a hold on it and trying to abolish it, um, twelve hundred people were on death row in Malaysia and all of them were set to either have their either be let out or have their death sentences converted to life in prison. Now, in regards to movies made about this, now there are two movies that one is definitely based on it and one is, I think, loosely based on it. So the one that's definitely based on it is one that's called Dada Is Death. And this is a four hour television miniseries that you can watch on YouTube. Um, It came out in 1988, two years after the men were executed. So they don't waste any time. It's an Australian miniseries, that is called Dada is Death. D-A-D-A-H is Death. Now, Dada means drugs. So that's what it is. But for those Australians that couldn't kind of wrap their heads around that, they released it as Barlow and Chambers, A Long Way From Home as well. For some reason, Sarah Jessica Parker is in this movie. Don't ask me why. I watched a scene of it and I, I just don't understand. Um, the main People in it. The most famous one is Hugo Weaving. I have not watched it. He plays either Barlow and Chambers. I presume he plays Chambers. Um, Hugo Weaving is famous for The Matrix, but more importantly, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So that is online. I did not watch it because it's over four hours long Um, and it is very loosely based on it, even though they are playing Barlow and Chambers. You know how these things go. Now, the one I watched that I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of was Return to Paradise. This came out in 1988, around the same time as Broke Down Palace, which I've seen about 50 times. Um, I don't know why they were suddenly making so many movies in the late 90s about Americans locked up in Asia. Um, I don't know what really inspired it, but I think Barlow and Chambers um, definitely played a huge role. So, I watched it yesterday, Return to Paradise, is about three men who are American, who are living it up in their, I guess, early 20s um, in Malaysia. Two of them return to the United States and one of them, Joaquin Phoenix, plays him. Joaquin is like, there's nothing he can't do. He's amazing. Um, I've loved him forever. I had him on my walls when I was a teenager when everyone else had like Hanson and shit. Um, and so they return to America. He stays behind because he wants to work with orangutans in Borneo, which same. And two years later, they find out that he's been in prison since pretty much the day they left Malaysia. He's on death row um, in Penang, which is the same. And it's very far fetched. It's much like Broke Down Palace. So basically, the point of it is. A woman who is in his defense comes to America and she says he will be executed in eight days unless you two return and take your fair share of the responsibility. If neither of you return, he will hang in eight days. If one of you returns, you have to do six years and he will be let off. And if both of you return, you all do three years. For some reason, this seems to be some sort of issue for Vince Vaughn, who plays one of them. Um, I was really struggling with it. Normally, I'm like the perfect movie audience. I I get sucked in. I don't really question things. Um, But the whole movie, almost three quarters of it, other than some amazing scenery in Malaysia at the start and kind of at the end, is them just deciding whether they're going to go back. Normally, I wouldn't question this, but the character that Vince Vaughn plays doesn't have a good he has a shitty apartment and he hates his job. What's he got going on? Like why can't he go back? What's the problem? Um he yeah, like I just I just I just don't know anyone who would not do that. Like it's unbelievable. Um <laughs> I was talking to myself watching it, I just couldn't believe it. Um but I can concede that there are a lot of themes in it. I guess the main point of it is how far would you go for a friend? Um, you know, What does friendship mean? That kind of thing. Joaquin was amazing. Um, I will say it had a twist that I did not expect. It was not predictable in the sense that maybe the last 20 minutes like shook me. Um, not enough to make me cry, but it shook me. But It and Broke Down Palace, which is essentially the female version of it that came out around the same time starring Claire Danes and Kate Beckinsale, but it's set in Thailand instead. It, I don't know where they get this romanticised idea that you can make deals with the court. Broke Down Palace, they, you know, make a deal that one can take the sentence for both of them and one can go. Um, And in this one, I it's the whole point of it is that they've made a deal that if they both come back and take their responsibility, he gets off death row and they split the responsibility. I've just never heard of this before. This is a very Hollywood romanticized idea of how things work and it's not how it works. Um, And it also, it was just very American. um, And it just, it really reminded me of how Americans, Australians and Brits are some of the worst tourists I've ever met overseas and how kind of disrespectful they are. And before you come for me, watch the movie because they were disrespectful and that's why they end up in the situation they end up in. But that's Return to Paradise. I found it on like Daily Motion for free or whatever. Um, It has some beautiful scenery. I don't really have a whole lot more to say about it Um, other than the fact that there was a couple of quotes in it that were word for word, the Barlow and Chambers case. So in one scene, Anne Heche, who plays, you know, the defence of him who has come to them to ask them to go back and take their fair share of the responsibility. She is giving examples of how media intrusion has pretty much sped up an execution. She talks about how an Australian woman um, went on every TV show to save her Aussie son all across the world and they sped up his execution. And she could have only been referring to Barbara Barlow in that instance. Um, the other one is that they, <laughs> when Vince Vaughn gets up without ruining it in court, he says, we were young and stupid, but we were not evil. I read you a quote earlier from an article, like I understand this article was written after, so someone copied someone. Um, Someone's watched this movie. So he says, we were young and stupid, but not evil. I read you a quote from Bruce Dover, who says that they were young and stupid, but not evil. And Staffordshire Live that I found, um, they said they were stupid and greedy, but not evil. So someone's copying someone. But yeah, so I hope that you've enjoyed my first episode covering um someone who is locked up abroad. I will probably only be covering Aussies for this because I've got quite a lot on my list, unfortunately. So yeah, um follow Instagram at Unknown Passage Podcast, go on the website, I've put up the Barlow and Chambers episode page and I'll put up I'll embed the um, you know the videos and the films that I've told you about so you can watch them on that. Um, it's easier. And become a patron. I've now added a $1 a month tier. I've got a $2 a month and a $5 a month tier. Um, so thank you so much for those of you who are patrons. When you become a patron, no matter what tier, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode after your first kind of grace period of a month. And leave a rating or review if you like the show Um yeah, on your podcast platform of choice. Now, the next episode will be a Patreon request and it will be one for a very interesting woman that I would probably want to speak to at some point on the podcast. So she is a patron and I will leave it at that. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and I'll talk to you next week. Chambers said to buy Last night on death row, come on brother, take my hand and go.